After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a podcast from Minute Media. NBA, I love this game. Actually, I love some other games more than professional basketball, but it is the time of the year where your favorite podcasters inform you that they are really locking in to the NBA as the playoffs approach, to which we should all say thanks. Thank you so much for monitoring what you are podcasting about and giving your opinion. It is literally, quite literally, the least you can do but the big game tonight you didn't see it on national tv and you want to know why they had to show the 95th straight los angeles lakers blowout loss i don't think lebron james is coming back i think he's going to find a reason to sit out the rest of the year and try to figure out what plan i think we're on e plan f for james's in the offseason to extricate himself from this mess or bring in an entire new starting five, like some sort of Gordon Bombay line change. No, the marquee matchup in the NBA involved the Milwaukee Bucks, the Philadelphia 76ers, a pivotal game for playoff seating. Giannis and Joel Embiid battling it out for not just important playoff posturing, but perhaps the first team all NBA selection, more importantly, the NBA, it was Giannis getting the last laugh as he blocked a shot at the buzzer and Embiid layup attempt to preserve a two point victory for the Bucks, who are now number two in the East. Giannis had 40 points and 14 rebounds. Embiid, not too shabby himself, 29 and 14. Gosh, you watch these two play basketball, and I never, ever thought I would see talent like this. The big men did not look like this when I was little. They did not move like this. There was some structure in place to prevent them from getting whatever they wanted when they wanted it. There was nobody stepping outside and hitting 28-foot three-pointers and beat hit three tonight. Pretty incredible. It's just the level of skill you see in the NBA kind of blows your mind. And even as a college guy, when I watch after the NCAA tournament, 
you can just see the disparity and it mostly comes down to shot making, but there's a level of athleticism and artistry and just professionalism and knowing the system, knowing the game, using it to your advantage, never having that deer in the headlights look. So you know what's going to happen when we wake up in the morning? It's going to be all about, did Giannis win the MVP last night? Did he take it from Embiid? Did he edge over Jokic? I guarantee you, that is a blood bank guarantee that at least four different shows are going to run with that. I can see the cry on right now. Giannis, MVP, question mark. I know this because this is what the industrial take complex has done. MVP discussions have been going on apace and without fail daily since the season was 15% over, 10% over. I We're going to creep soon enough to be the first week. Who's the first week MVP? What's your ballot look like now? We are constantly obsessed with sharing our personal lists, rankings, hierarchies, all of that. And that's fine. And we know that. But through this specific prism, it just doesn't make any sense. There's still some time left in the regular season, though, with 90% of it in the rearview mirror, you can have a realistic, competent, informed discussion about what's going on. That comes on the heels of months and months and months of attacking the shiniest thing, crafting your DeMar DeRozan is the MVP takes after two or three hot weeks, imploring for 45 different dudes to be, quote, in the conversation, whatever that means. It's just what we do now. It really wasn't always this way, and it wasn't that long ago that things were different. I wrote something back in 2016 that I found that came to mind earlier today when I was listening to something that was talking about this NBA MVP race and taking a straw poll of everybody and debating the issue before all the evidence had been heard by the jury. In my mind, the turning point was the 2015 NBA Finals between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors. I will never forget that after game one, discussion turned not from what happened, but who the MVP should be. I noted it. I put it in my little black book to refer to later. And sure enough, after game two, same thing happened. Now this person's the MVP. In games three, four, five, all of it. You know how it goes. And I remember writing at the time that what's happening here? What is this obsession with handing out a trophy when the series sits at 1-1 or 2-1. What is the value here? These opinions are going to be outdated as soon as the ball is tipped off in the next game. Because one thing we do well, recency bias. We are awesome at it. And everybody is. It's not inherently a bad thing. But what recency bias does is it totally papers over the mountain of previous data by being the shiniest, newest thing in the room. 
Sure enough, after game two, different guy, game three, different guy, game four, different guy, and on and on and on. And it's only gotten a million times worse. But it used to just be the NBA Finals. It used to be that specific award. That was kind of the entry point for the daily cataloging of the horse racing that was going on. Next, it moved on to the NFL MVP. And that kind of made sense because the NFL, you get at that time, 16 weeks, and you're able to come back after each one of those, talk about what happened the most recent Sunday, explain why the dude who had the hottest game deserves to be MVP, even if half the season was to play. Now, (laughs) it's not been a great development, but I would say an inordinate amount of the NBA content that I've consumed this year has been done through the conversation of, hey, who's your MVP? Give me your MVP list right now. Does this person deserve the ultimate individual award over the other guy? I get it. I mean, I, I understand why that conversation attracts attention. It is quite it is quite intentionally discussing the biggest names in the sport, the ones that have the biggest fingerprint on the game, the ones that are going to move the needle, and honestly kind of bring everybody out there into the tent because you don't have to be a basketball expert. You don't have to be locked in each and every single night to understand who the four or five best players in the NBA are. It's a star-driven league. There's no secret to it. You play the hits. You're not going to go broke doing this, and it's a safe one. And honestly, here's the thing. It inspires debate because you can attack it from a bunch of different directions, whether you really believe it or whether you want to do it for show. And it's circular. Nothing that you say in this department can ever be held against you. There are absolutely no stakes to it. There's no penalty for saying someone is the NBA MVP 47 games into the season and then saying someone else is the MVP 54. You have the out of, I got more information, I changed my mind. Again, ideally, that's what you want people to do, but it kind of shows in retrospect how silly and inane and absolutely ephemeral ephemeral the previous debate which mind you the people having it may have gotten extremely pissed off they may have been extremely animated they may have really put on a show with the aim of creating a moment online getting attention for what they're doing and generating eyeballs i find myself at sometimes feeling like an old crank And I'm not that old. I'm only 38. But I think that 16 years on the internet, that time has honed my senses into understanding how the sausage gets made and how oftentimes that sausage is not supposed to be delicious. It's just intended to be filler for the next meal for an audience that is always hungry. To back up a bit, 
the big lead rose to whatever prominence you want to say that it had or that it has now because sports blogs had an inherent advantage over television networks and larger mainstream media companies because Jason McIntyre and his crew and Deadspin and that crew over there was adroit. They could do things in real time. They could have conversations that were at the time deemed unsuitable or below the standard of what would appear on ESPN. And a funny thing happened. It's not so much that the blogs started to look more and more like ESPN, which eventually they did. Jason went to Fox Sports. But ESPN started to look an awful lot more like the sports blogs. The biggest example of this, get your remember berries out and hearken back to a time when, when ESPN would show SportsCenter on repeat the same episode over and over and over and over again in the morning. We didn't think twice about it. That's the way that it was. The move to have fresh episodes to react in real time to hit those news items as they came up and to present a more concurrent and lively product, they turned to what the blogs were doing. And that was go, go, go in real time because honestly, they were getting their ass kicked because at that time it took so long for a piece of content to go through all the editors at huge outlets to appear online to get sent out this is pre-social media largely so it was a habit of you would just go to the websites that you're familiar with that you wanted to follow to see what they had as the day was happening and that's kind of how people followed news before twitter you would go to the big lead eight different times you would go to fan house you would go to deadspin you go to sports by brooks you hit all these places up to see what was happening in the sporting world espn smartly realized hey we're the biggest game in town we should be doing this this conversation should emanate from us and that's exactly what they did blogs were for all their faults a more nuanced and thoughtful view of what was happening because you had to go through the work of writing an entire post about it. Usually there was some commentary to it. The process was faster than it, more stable and expansive outlets, but it still took some effort to get it out there. So everybody would kind of rush to put out the same type of 300 word blurbs about what was happening in a summation. And you can make the argument through a journalistic lens that that's worse, that you create a lesser informed audience. But if you believe that, which I think that I do, then the inception of Twitter and Facebook and the ability for everybody to just get anything out there in a snap of a finger has made things worse. I think a lot of these national shows have gone from taking their marching orders from the executives there and the great producers there to 
falling in the trap of being just like everybody else, to not using the resources that they have at hand in the most productive way possible, but instead kind of like living in the gutter and living in the sewer with the lowest common denominator chatter that's out there by embracing debate. Now, am I going to lose sleep over the fact that NBA MVP is being discussed ad nauseum? Is that going to hurt me? No. I just think it's pretty incredible the speed at which everything has changed. I've spoken many times on this podcast about the flattening of information, about expertise being devalued, but also that expertise running away from what it is and kind of reverting back to the mean. And I think that's what's going on with the NBA and what's going on with the MVP conversation as it goes day to day. By the way, my MVP, Giannis, thanks for asking. And the other NBA story, let's shop local. Let's talk some Pistons basketball, baby. Not enough of that happening at the national level. Honestly, not enough of that happening locally as this franchise has struggled for relevance in recent years. But here is what I will say. More help is on the way in the NBA draft, but help is already here. And it's here in the form of Cade Cunningham. I watched tonight as he went into Brooklyn and he went head to head with Kevin Durant. Bucket for bucket in a great game. Offense was off the charts in this one. Now, ultimately, Brooklyn ends up winning to preserve their chances at escaping that play-in tournament, getting through it somehow, proving that the regular season uh, just doesn't matter at all, and it's, it's all for giggles and laughs and charity anyway and the kids. But Cade was magnificent tonight. He scores 34 points. He has six assists. He handled himself with poise beyond what a rookie normally has. And let's get back to that MVP conversation. Let's go through the lens of who's the rookie of the year right now. Now, Evan Mobley in Cleveland is the betting favorite, but Cade Cunningham is going to be a magnificent player. He may already be a magnificent player. And the overwhelming emotion I have when I watch him is this fond nostalgia for Grant Hill, who came in as the third overall pick in 1994 out of Duke. He was my favorite player. He was a walking triple-double. I remember listening to the games. And the thing about him is how he controlled the game while not having any interest in scoring over 22 points, hardly ever, unless the team really needed it. He was the point guard. He was the quarterback. He made everybody better. You trusted him with your life. He never turned into an all everything player. He is not ever mentioned among the greats of the game because he is not, but he was a solid basketball player, a perennial all-star, the cornerstone of a franchise. We could go on and on about his exploits and the take, the hot take is that Cade Cunningham is Grant Hill 2.0. Their games are somewhat similar. They are of the same height. They see the floor the same way. Cunningham 
was not a great three-point shooter coming out of Oklahoma State. He's made strides there. I don't think he's ever going to be a knockdown dude. I think he prefers that 19-footer, much like Grant Hill did. Loves to get to the rack, loves to find teammates, and is tough, gritty, and gutty, and he's a winner. The Pistons were awful for most of the year. They played 500 basketball over this last stretch. They're competing with the elite teams in the NBA. They are not pushovers, and the signs of improvement are really there, and it all starts with Cunningham. Now, where can this thing go? They're going to get a very high draft selection, assuming they don't get unlucky in the lottery. That could mean Chet Holmgren. That could mean Jabari Smith. That could mean Paulo Banchero. All three would be welcome. All three seem to be all NBA players if they ever put it together, maybe not Holmgren, but they all will come in with the ability to immediately contribute to be the second or third best guy on a championship team, maybe third at worst, but we already have in Detroit, the number one, the alpha, the star, the one that's going to stir everything and make it go. In Grant Hill's second year, the Pistons won 46 games and made the playoffs. Next year will be Cade's sophomore campaign. I don't think it's unreasonable to believe that with some luck, with some improvement across the roster, with that jump you know Cade is going to take from year one to year two, that the Pistons could flirt with that, or they could flirt with 500. The way that the NBA has expanded the playoffs through the play-in, that probably gets you at least with a chance to play meaningful basketball when it matters. And it would be dynamite. It would be fantastic. I've talked to, I'm blue in the face about how much Detroit appreciates a winner, appreciates a hard nosed team and will reward players for being the type of gutty, confident, take no shit dudes. And that's what Kate is. And it's so exciting to see the beginning stages of this. You go back to the moment the Pistons won the lottery. They needed that win. It had been so long. Breath needed to be given to this franchise that was on life support. And it came in the form of that number one pick. Revisionist history will say that Mobley was the guy they should have selected, but no GM had that. It would have been a shocking move if Mobley had gone number one. The thing about Cade was his floor was going to be so high. You knew what he was getting, even if his ceiling was never going to be first team all NBA, which it might be. Who knows? I don't really see it right now, but what's the NBA going to look like in five years when he's hitting his prime? Your guess is as good as mine, and you're probably investing in crypto, and I'm not. So one of us will be proven wrong on both fronts. The Pistons are at the stage where they're getting a lot of moral victories. And this is the part about sports that often gets overlooked. They could tank. Yes. They could certainly tank to try to get that number one pick. And maybe ultimately it'll prove a mistake that they keep winning and they keep fighting and they are tackling the challenge head on. But these moral victories and actual victories are how a team is built. It's how they get up off the mat. It's how they change the narrative. There's a certain sense of pride in watching a team that is overmatched fight and show that there's some heart in there. 
where if you ever built a roster, got some improvement, got a little lucky, you might have something there. It's fun to see. It's really fun to see. So Cade Cunningham, watch out for this guy. He's kind of still a secret. You don't really hear him discuss that much. And I get it because his game is not as flashy as other dudes and may never be. I think that that's a fair guess, a fair estimation. For me, I got Cade Cunningham as Grant Hill 2.0. That's a wonderful thing for the Pistons, and it could pay big dividends as soon as next year. Hey, speaking of Grant Hill, the basketball gods have conspired to provide an all-time matchup in a Final Four full of blue bloods. Mike Krzyzewski, who saw his farewell party at Cameron Indoor, spoiled by the low Tar Heels, gets another crack at North Carolina as he continues to dance toward retirement Saturday night in New Orleans. CBS and Turner, who couldn't have scripted a more perfect scenario for intrigue and ratings, held a conference call for reporters today featuring Grant Hill and Bill Raftery. The two analysts will join Jim Nance and Tracy Wilson on the call as TBS airs its first Final Four since 2018. And if you think there was great interest in Coach K and the ready for Hollywood storylines that trail him everywhere he goes, well, you'd be 100% correct. Duke fatigue is a real and serious condition to be discussed with trusted medical professionals. But even those who claim they can't bear any more blue devils in their life should admit that on some level, deep down in their consciousness, they're going to miss the winningest coach to ever don a quarter zip when he's gone. Raftery and Hill both spoke about the complicated emotions they carry watching the final chapters courtside, which likely mirror those of the public. Not that many would ever be honest about it. For me, it's personal, Raftery reflected. I got to know and respected Mike when he was at Army and became friends and knew the kids when they were young. To follow him and see him grow and establish this iconic stature, knowing that he still possesses the same humility that he did back in those days. He's been great for basketball from my seat. And having said that, we go to each game rooting for 10 kids on the floor and try to eliminate the personalities of the coaches, however big an influence they might be. For me, it's a thrill and a sadness as well to see someone who could be a spokesman for basketball decide to pack it in, but hopefully he'll maintain a big influence and continue to have people lean upon him in terms of what he thinks can better the game. Hill, forever tied to Duke and his former skipper, added, As a broadcaster, you fall in love with all these teams and all these coaches. You spend a significant amount of time researching and getting to know through spending time with them at practice, and you want to see everyone do well. On a personal note, obviously, the relationship and experiences I've had with Coach K, having played for him, it is bittersweet in a lot of ways. It's great that he's on this incredible run and his team's grown up right before our eyes here on this particular stage. To go into the Final Four and play against the ultimate rival and the ultimate rivalry, it's fitting in a way. It's fitting we get this treat as basketball fans, as broadcasters. It's bittersweet because it's tough to see him go as someone who has been such an important figure in basketball in general across the world. It's an incredible run and journey he's had. There are either 40 or 80 minutes remaining to watch a legend operate. Whether you're loving or loathing it, savoring it remains a 
good option. Hey, one more media note before I go. The Jim Nance tie thing. I'm going to see it this year. I know it. I can't wait for the jokes. Jim Nance doesn't give his tie away anymore. That's done. It's over. That information got out there a few years ago, and I'm very invested in the story because it's one of the few things that I actually broke. I happened to be sitting at one of these events when Nance came in. It was one of the only open seats was next to me, and we got to talking, and he told me the full story of why he initially gave that first tie away. It was to Corey Brewer. The story is not about Jim Nance. It was never supposed to be a look at me thing. I know some people won't believe that. I think it's really true. He was not mortified, but he never wanted that to be public anyway, that that was happening. And it was misconstrued to be something that it wasn't. So not blaming anybody for Jim Nance not giving his tie away anymore, but he doesn't. You can still make that joke. Of course, I guess I see the comedy in him giving it out, especially uh, to a sweaty dude. I've seen it in person. I've seen a guy wearing it after playing a championship game. But Jim Nance, the tie thing, it's old news. It's gone too soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.